You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. If you've got a Bible with you tonight, would you turn to Mark chapter 10? And to make this more authentic tonight, I actually brought a Bible, which is unusual for preachers to do these days, because usually we're using iPads, but, but we're just going to go to one text tonight, and so it's in Mark chapter 10, and it's in verse 17. It's the account. It's not a story because Jesus did tell some stories in the Gospels. This is an account. This is something that actually happened. And it's the encounter of the rich young ruler with Jesus. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17, this is what the Bible says. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Notice that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes as we pray tonight? Lord, I pray tonight that you would help me to be able to preach your word. The Holy Spirit, you might attach your supernatural power to natural words tonight. That, Lord, they might embed in our heart. That, God, days, weeks, and months from now, they might germinate into something fruitful. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said... Amen. The Bible tells us three things about the young man that Jesus encounters in Mark chapter 10. Firstly, the Bible tells us that he's rich. Some people have made a lot of money over their lifetime, but for this young guy, he was so rich that his wealth went before him. People knew him by the amount of money that he had. And so we don't know his name, but we do know that he was incredibly rich. Not only that, the Bible tells us that he was rich, but also that he was young. Some people spend a lifetime to be able to accumulate wealth, but this young man had great wealth from a young age. But perhaps he inherited it, perhaps it came to him in some other way, but from a young age, this man had had a lot of money. And so the Bible tells us that he was rich, the Bible tells us that he was young, and lastly, the Bible tells us that he was a ruler. It wasn't just that he had a lot of money and that he had it at a young age, it was that it came with a lot of influence, that when men would come to the city gates to preside over important matters, this was one of the young men who would find himself there. Perhaps the other men who were with him were older than he was, but because he was rich and because he was young and because he was a ruler, he had great esteem within the community. And so the Bible doesn't give us a name, but it does tell us a little bit about who this guy is. And so I think because of that, I think when always I had read this scripture, I always imagined that when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he came to him as a rich young ruler. He came to him as somebody with importance and status, that he just kind of rolled up to Jesus and he stepped out of his Bentley chariot and he was looking at his sundial watch and he had all of those trappings of wealth and fame. He was the kind of person that all the guys wanted to be like and he was the kind of guy that all the girls' mums wanted him to marry. And so as a result of that, I kind of always imagined that that when the rich young ruler met Jesus, that it was like two men meeting on mutual terms. And so the rich young ruler kind of strolled up to Jesus and opened the briefcase and said, all right, well, how much will it cost me now to inherit eternal life? But that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says that when the rich young ruler sees Jesus, firstly, the Bible tells us that he ran to Jesus. 
That part is kind of lost on us because we aren't in a first century context. We're in a 21st century context. And so the fact that he ran to Jesus doesn't really make uh, much, it's not that elaborate for us, but it was for the first century. For this reason, because men in Middle Eastern culture don't run. Children run and youths will run and sometimes even women will run, but men do not run, especially not men of status because it's seen as uncouth for them to gather up the hem of their garments and to expose their ankles and run. And yet the Bible says that when the rich young ruler sees Jesus, this guy who's got status and wealth and fame, when he sees Jesus, the Bible says that he ran to Jesus. That's not by mistake. In other words, the rich young ruler did not care who was watching. He was not worried about what other people thought. Having seen Jesus, his one desperate desire was to be where Jesus was. For some of the young adults who've already registered for retreat, that is one of the convictions of a person who actually encounters God is that they're not so worried about what others think as much as they are about what God thinks. It's not just true of young adults, it's true of all people, that one of the greatest breakthroughs in a person's life is when they realize, I'm actually living my life for an audience of one. So the rich young ruler, even though he's somebody of wealth and power and status, sees Jesus and he ran to Jesus. You can imagine that the minute the rich young ruler starts running, that people who are there and watching this whole procession go on, that they stop and they start to watch because they're like, there's a guy and he's running. And as he runs, they realize, hold on, that's the rich young ruler. The Bible tells us that he ran to Jesus. In other words, he didn't care who else was watching. The Bible also tells us not only that he ran to Jesus, but that he fell on his knees before Jesus. In other words, he ran to Jesus, but he also respected Jesus. If somebody of great importance was to come into the room, then one of the things that you and I could do in order to be able to show reverence and respect would be to take a knee. And that's exactly what the rich young ruler does. Again, you can kind of imagine this, right? That there is a crowd of people who are watching as a man begins to run. And as they realize, hold on, that's the rich young ruler. And not only is he running with, without worrying about what people think, now he's kneeling down in front of this. Who, who's the other guy? And so he ran to Jesus. He respected Jesus. But this is perhaps the more important part. The rich young ruler looks at Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, good, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. The Bible's not written with stage directions, but if the Bible were written with stage direction, then in this moment, there would be in the margin of the, of the page, it would say pregnant pause. Because when the rich young ruler runs and then respects, the last thing that he does is he recognizes who Jesus is. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops and says, whoa, 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 why'd you say that? Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. Are you calling me God? And then in that moment, everybody who had been watching what was just happening stopped. You can almost imagine it, can't you, that you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And then Jesus says, well, you know the, the Ten Commandments? And he begins to list them. And as he lists them, the rich young ruler turns around and says, well, Jesus, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus says, all right, there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. 
And then the Bible says that at this, the man's face fell because he had great wealth. We know the story from the way that the scripture says it, but, but imagine actually being there and seeing that. That the rich young ruler runs and then respects and then recognizes Jesus. And then Jesus, looking back at this young guy, says to him, all right, all right, you recognize who I am? Look, here's the one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You can almost see the disappointment in Jesus saying, you still think it's about what you can do in order to be saved. But, but I'm telling you that that's actually not how this whole thing works. And so Jesus says, all right, we'll go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the Bible says that at this, the man's face fell because he had great wealth. The Bible could very rightly say that he went his own way because that's precisely what actually ended up happening. If you keep reading on, this is what the scripture goes on to be able to say. Then the disciples were even more amazed because Jesus says it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes and says in verse 28, Peter said to Jesus, he said, hey, we left everything to follow you. And so verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, right, having seen this whole thing happen, I'm going to pull Jesus aside and just say, hey, look, just the next time, right, you're sharing with people like the rich young ruler, you should just mention the second part, right? Like, like if you'd said to him, hey, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and when you do that, you'll receive 100 times back in this life and in the one to come, everything you've given up. Like, he's a smart guy. He'll be able to work that out. So let me help you with your sermon technique here. Let me help you with the altar call part because when you share that part, that makes, the, that makes it a lot easier for him to be able to respond. But, of course, Jesus' point is not actually about what the rich young ruler has. Because when Jesus says to the, the disciples, he says, yeah, everything you've given up, you receive 10 times, 100 times as much. The point is this, is that Jesus was not interested in what the rich young ruler had. Jesus was actually interested in what had the rich young ruler. See, for the rich young ruler, it was his money. And when Jesus looked at him and loved him, he realized at some point in this journey of faith, when push comes to shove, you're going to lean on whatever you call Lord in your life. And so for the rich young ruler, it was money, but it could have been anything. It could have been a particular relationship. It could have been about his background or family name. It could have been about his socioeconomic status. It could have been about his abilities, whether it came to sports or whether it came to his intellectual ability. It could have been anything. But for the rich young ruler, it was money. And I find it interesting that the rich young ruler looks at Jesus and Jesus looks back at him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And yet he still went away sad. That Jesus actually offers to the rich young ruler the same thing he says to the 12 disciples. He, he says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. That, that actually the offer he is presenting to the rich young ruler is to become the 13th disciple. That this is an opportunity that lays ahead of him. And the Bible says that the rich young ruler, having seen all of this and knowing who Jesus is and, and having stood and looked into the eyes of love and compassion, still walks away sad because he couldn't let it go. 
And my sermon tonight is really just one question for you. What are you holding on to so tightly that you won't let God in? In India, for centuries, they caught monkeys the same way. What they would do is, is make clay jars that had a scalloped neck to the jar. And they'd put a piece of food inside the jar and then stake the jar to the ground. And the monkeys would come down out of the trees and reach into the jar in order to be able to get out of the jar the, the piece of food that was in there. When they put their hands in, because their hands were open, they'd be able to reach in. But once they'd clenched their fists tight, they couldn't get their hand back out of the neck of the jar. And for centuries, they caught monkeys this way because the monkey's mentality was so strictly to hold on to that crumb of food inside the jar that even as their captors were coming to collect them, they would not let it go. All they had to do was let it go and they would be able to walk away free. And yet they were so desperate to hold on to that morsel of food inside the jar that they would not let it go. And I have found in my life more than I would like to actually admit that I found myself clinging to things that don't bring life. And so what is it? What is it that you're holding on to so tightly that you won't actually let God release it? What is it that's hiding in the jar? What is it that's hiding in your life that actually is bringing death and God wants to bring life? In this morning service as we were in worship, I said, Lord, what is it that you want to be able to do? What is it that you want to be able to do today? And I felt God really distinctly say, there are many who are healed, but they haven't been made well. As soon as God said it, I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about Luke chapter 17. When Jesus met 10 lepers, Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. This is what the scripture says. It says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And he was going to a village and 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Listen to this, verse 17. And Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well that there were 10 men who had leprosy and all were healed, but only one of them was made well. They were all healed. They had their ailment fixed, but only one of them was made whole. Only one of them was made well. And it happened when he returned to Jesus. It reminds me of another place. And in a moment, we're going to get the worship team to be able to come back. It reminds me of another moment. When Jesus goes to the graveside of his friend Lazarus, in fact, the worship team, if you guys want to, you can come back now. This would be a good time to do it, I reckon. Jesus goes to, his, to the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus goes, and you know this story, right? Jesus calls out Lazarus' name, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus removes the stone. Lazarus comes out alive. 
And then Jesus says to the friends that are there who've been mourning and now are ecstatic that Lazarus is alive, he, he says, now remove the grave clothes. Why? Because Lazarus is alive, but he still smells like death. And the miracle of Lazarus being brought from death to life was instantaneous. Jesus did that at the command of his word. It was Jesus who brought Lazarus to life. It was Jesus who rolled away the stone. It was Jesus who made that miracle possible. But then there was a process of removing the stench of death that was on Lazarus's life. Haven't you found that to be true in your own experience with God? That it's possible to be saved and yet still have the lingering smell of death on you. That there can be areas of your life where you say, well, why is it that, that, that I'm a Christian now, but I still find these struggles that I had before, they still linger on with me now? How come there are patterns of thinking that are still a part of my vocabulary? They're still a part of the way that I think. Shouldn't this have gone at the moment of salvation? And the truth is your salvation experience was miraculous and it was instantaneous and it was a conversion from death to life. But that doesn't mean that death has left its smell just yet. There's a process for Lazarus to be able to take off the grave clothes and that actually happened in a group of friends. It actually happened amongst a group of trusted people a lot like a church. It's a little bit like how God brought Israel out of Egypt. That that when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, it is amazing and it is miraculous and God does it in the most spectacular of ways. I mean, the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and Israel passing through on dry ground and then those that are chasing from their past get squashed underneath the waves and the water as they subside. And yet then Israel takes 40 years to take a journey that probably should have taken them no more than a month to get from the edge of the Red Sea to the place of promise, the promised land. Why? Because even though Israel is out of Egypt, Egypt's not yet out of Israel. In fact, it's like two seconds later that Israel starts to whinge and complain and say, you know what? It was easier for us in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. That it'd just be way better for us. This is too much responsibility. This is too difficult. And it's like, really? Egypt was better? They were murdering your children. They were taking away your future. You want to go back there? Yet it's amazing how even on the other side of a miraculous salvation for Israel, there was still some effects of Egypt that was left in them. It wasn't so much about what they had. It's about what had them. In the same way that for Lazarus, it wasn't so much about the miracle of him being raised to life. It was now a process of removing the smell of death. That in the same way it was for the 10 lepers, that all 10 had experienced the miraculous power of God to cleanse, but only one of them really experienced the fullness of God to be made well. And for all the people in all those stories, the same thing is true. The common denominator is that they returned to Jesus. So I want to ask you again tonight, this is a sermon with one point. What is it that you're holding on to so tightly that you're not allowing God into that area of your life? Great theologian said that Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. 
And that's true. That when you and I say yes to Jesus, we're not just signing up for Jesus to be our master. We're not just signing up for Jesus to be our saviour. But we're not just signing up for Jesus to be our example or our model or our friend, though those things are true. Sometimes I think in my own journey of faith, it's been lost on me because I've so emphasised the fact that Jesus is my friend that I've forgotten that He's God. Like Almighty God, like spoke and the universe sprawled out from His mouth, God. Like so infinitely God that finite me to try and capture who He is I would have more chance of capturing the entire ocean in a cup than I would of fully understanding the magnitude of God. And Jesus is my friend and He is my example, but He's got to be more than that because at the moment I say yes to Jesus, it's not just that He becomes my Saviour, it's that He also becomes my Lord, which means I can't subscribe to Him and I can't take measured doses of Him. Either He's Lord of all of my life and Saviour of all of my life or not at all in my life. And I've found this to be true of my experience with God, that in the times in my life where I have found there has been struggles in my own journey of faith, that the answer hasn't, hasn't been so much on focusing on the areas of struggle, it's been on focusing the God of my salvation. That's actually less and less and less about me and more and more and more about God. I found that true of my own salvation experience. That when I first said yes to Jesus, I would have said to you that that actually I got saved, I prayed the prayer, I made the decision. And part of that is true, that that actually I did. I did make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. There was a moment like that, like there was in this morning services where people made a conscious decision and they raised their hand and they prayed a prayer. But you know, the longer I've been a Christian, now I begin to realise, hold on, this is probably less, less about what I did in this process and more about what God did. The closer to my salvation experience, I thought it was me, I'd done it. And yet then further from my salvation experience, I realised my part was so tiny in the whole scheme of what God was doing. Because there were people who came into my life at certain points and certain things that happened at different moments. And yeah, there was a distinct moment where I said yes, but it was God who was wooing me all the way to that point, that God was working in my life, even in ways that I didn't appreciate at the time. And now with a little more time and perspective, I realized, you know what? I got to pull the trigger, but it was God who put all the key pieces in place. It reminds me of another thing. It reminds me of the way that Paul describes salvation for us. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, when Jesus, when Paul talks about salvation, he talks about it this way. He says, for those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ. And maybe you've heard people preach or explain before that, you know, every single person has a God-shaped hole on the inside of them. And we just need God to fill that. People try and fill it with all different kinds of things. Maybe you've heard people talk like that. People try and fill it with all different kinds of things, with drugs and with relationships and with alcohol. And they try and fill this God-shaped hole, but it's only reserved for God and only God can fill a God-shaped hole. And, and I understand what they're trying to say when they're saying that, but they're totally missing the bigger picture of what God does in our life. 
Because it's not that I was basically whole and there was a little piece that was missing. And so I just required a little bit of God to fill the last piece of the puzzle that was missing. And now I'm whole and now everything's good and now I'm right with God. And I was pretty good before. Like I was really, and it was just like a little bit, like my brother, he was worse, but I was pretty good. And then, and then God just put this little piece and now it's all complete. That's not how Paul talks about it. He says, for those who are in Christ, It's not so much that we need a little bit of God to fit into a God-shaped hole in our life. It's actually that that our life is broken and only makes sense inside the borders of God's grace. It's kind of like those puzzles you did as a kid. Do you remember those um, puzzles you did with like the the 20-piece puzzles where they do the most difficult thing for you first? They give you the border. And then they put like little knobs on the pieces for those who have poor dexterity. If you're having a bad day, you can do one of these kids 20-piece puzzles and just feel like you're conquering life because they're so easy to be able to do. But with those puzzles, you, you tip them all out and then you take all the pieces and you put them inside the border that's already created for you. And that's the way that Paul talks about our salvation experience. He says, for those who are in Christ, in other words, our lives are broken and scattered until God begins to place them together inside the borders of His grace and His power and His forgiveness and His mercy. And so I'm returning again to ask you one question tonight. What is it that you're holding on so tightly to that you're not allowing God to be able to move? Could you stand just for a minute? And would you just bow your heart, your eyes for a second? Bow your heads, close your eyes for a second. Holy Spirit, I just ask even right now that God, you begin to move. That God, you would begin to speak to people. That God, you would begin to draw us unto yourself. Holy Spirit, do that. Holy Spirit, do that. If you're here tonight, and even as I'm sharing, you're like, do you know what? You don't need to point it out. I know what this area of my life is, where there's just, there's no surrender. It's like I've cordoned this area of my life off and I'm not letting God anywhere near it. But even as you're talking tonight, I can feel God just poking at it, saying, let me in, let me be Lord of all. Then in just a minute, I'm gonna ask the worship team to be able to sing whatever song it is they're prepared to sing. And as they do that, I'm gonna pray for you. Just right where you are, just to begin to do business with God. You don't need me to actually do this. You can do it, but just release it and say, God, I'm surrendering everything. I'm surrendering all. I don't just wanna be saved. I wanna be made whole in Jesus' name. Let's worship. for listening to this podcast.